You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, Joe Badaracco, who is a professor at Harvard Business School and also the author of many books, including Leading Quietly, Defining Moments, Managing in the Gray, and of course, Questions of Character, which I have here, The Good Struggle, and most recently, a book called Step Back, How to Bring the Art of Reflection into Your Busy Life. Welcome, Joe. Good to be here, Greg. Now, I think you do something which is a little bit unfashionable now, I think, at least in the academic context, which is you, you, know, you teach leadership and you, and you teach ethics. And it's been my observation that leadership, the way it's taught now, it's kind of been taken over by the social sciences to some degree, in part because of the academic priorities of our business schools. We have psychologists, we have economists who will teach social psychology, maybe a little bit of sociology, and then maybe decision theory. And maybe there'll be a little bit in ethics on, I don't know, utilitarianism versus deontological reasoning. But your mission is really one about kind of character building, helping people to become leaders by cultivating their character. And this seems like, I guess, we used to think that this was what education was all about. We used to think that, you know, even business schools were were all about, but we don't really do it that much anymore. I think that people come out of business school and and they kind of have to learn on the fly and maybe they'll get some coaches and so forth. I guess the question is, is that your observation? And if so, why is it that we don't teach this incredibly important thing, which is how to become who you are, right? you know, how to, how to yes. <laughs> cultivate character and, and virtue and, and so forth. First of all, you're right about your characterization of leadership today. The positive way of putting it is that a lot of different fields look at it from a lot of different perspectives and leadership is complex. So that's perfectly appropriate. But ideally, if you've got students in a school for two years, so we have a two-year MBA program, you want to impact not just what they know, but to some degree who they are, shape their instincts a little bit, shape how they see situations, and get them to be more reflective about who they are, the good parts, the bad parts, and, and the like. And so I've taught a number of courses that I arguably make a small contribution in this direction, but what we really try to do at HBS, where we have a residential campus and we've got students for two years, is to try to have the whole curriculum, make them more reflective, learn from each other and learn to some extent from their professors about the kind of person they want to be, in addition to the kind of analytical tools they want to use. So that's, that's a broad characterization. And that's not just about me. It's about the, the educational institution where I work. Now, look, when we think of business people, we don't always think of them as being the most reflective people. We think of them as they're caught up in, in the hurly-burly. Yeah, doers. I think you use that term in, in one, one of your books, right? And they're constantly on, on the hustle. And I, and I think that, if anything, that's probably accelerated in terms of its dynamic. You describe a world, that kind of Chandlerian world of large organizations that are very hierarchical. And that coincided with a world where a lot of people would work nine to five. And there was a place maybe then for reflection, but certainly in in today's world where 
everybody's under constant pressure and companies can, you know, lose 25% of their market value in, <laughs> yeah. in one day. We just saw that like last week. Who's got time for reflection? You just asked the question that I asked myself several years ago, and it's what led to this little book called Step Back that was published about a year ago. So coming back to your original question about character, you, me, everybody who cares about this often encourages people to reflect. And that sounds good and feels good, but it's usually not followed up with any specifics about what to do it or when you find time to do it. So I started about three years ago on a kind of a research project. And I ultimately interviewed about a hundred people, managers at all levels of organizations, some of them twice. So it was about 150 interviews and, uh, ask them, what do you think reflection is and do you do it? And if so, when and how an interesting action reaction I got from a lot of them initially was along the lines of what you just said. They said, I'm sorry, but I'm really the wrong person. I don't have any time to reflect. I said, well, let's just talk a little bit further. And what came clear to me after a while is they had a image of reflection, which is a sort of a quiet, solitary, go up to the mountain sort of experience. And very few of the hundred people I interviewed were able to do that. But as we talked more, I began noticing that they did find different ways to reflect, but briefly. I ultimately noticed that just about everybody had their own particular pattern of these brief moments of reflection. So what I describe them as doing in the book is mosaic reflection, lots of little bits as opposed to going up to the mountain. And I won't go on about this. Some people did it while they were commuting. I just don't mean thoughts pass through their heads. I mean that they would get into their car maybe listen to the radio or something for a while. And then they would consciously try to come back to some issue at work. They'd face that day or they're going to face uh, the day coming up. And uh, some of them even had notes or put comments on it, dictated comments on a phone. Some people said they did it, again, explicitly and consciously while they were exercising. Other people tried to put aside like five minutes before they fell asleep at night. It's almost as if we all have a kind of an impulse to reflect and it finds its way out. And for the vast majority of people I talked about, they were reflecting in these little bits and pieces. And if you want to, we can go into this in a little more detail. They were often reflecting, doing quick versions of classic versions of reflection that had been around for millennia, but busy people do reflect. They just don't go up to the mountain very often. Yeah. I think of it as marbleization, right? You can get your fat on the outside <laughs> of the meat or you can have your fat like embedded <laughs> in the meat. And I remember yes, one time someone said, well, you don't, you don't reflect, you know, I never see you at the retreat in the monastery. And I said, well, you know, you can reflect when you're, when you're walking to the car, you can reflect when you're engaged in cooking. Does that count as reflection if you're driving or if you're doing something else? And you didn't actually mention meditation much in, in the book. You talked a bit about mindfulness, but you know, the folks who advocate meditation, they describe it as something that you have to really work at it and you have to really devote yourself to it. And, and they are dismissive of the kind of episodic or mosaic reflection that you're talking about. Let me talk about reflection first. 
and meditation first. Very few of the people, when I asked them about reflection, referred to meditation. A couple did. And I think that's because in this country, in recent years, there's been one predominant approach to meditation, and that's been mindfulness, which is emptying your mind or observing your thoughts as they pass through, saying hello to your thoughts and then goodbye. And this is not reflecting, which is something a little bit closer to thinking, turning something over in your mind, trying to understand something, trying to get more clarity. So I think simply because I was asking about reflection, I didn't get many. I suspect a few more of the folks I talked with did try to spend some time meditating. But unless you get into some other forms of meditation, about which I know very little, but are part of the Eastern tradition, you're not really doing anything that is close to reflection in the sense that the folks I talked to were talking about reflection. Your big question was, can you make progress in little bits and pieces? And a lot of the people said, yes, for a, a day, an afternoon, sometimes a week, there will be an issue that I am coming back to again and again, albeit in brief periods. And sometimes I'm just ruminating, going around in circles, and that's not progress. And sometimes I see some aspect of it that I hadn't noticed before. And I note that mentally, or I make a physical note of it, and I try to come back to it. One of the people I interviewed ran a huge consumer products company. Everybody listening would recognize it. Again, coming back to customizing your own personal approach. When he said that as CEO, there was an issue landed on his desk, he had, decide to, had to decide and didn't know what to do. Sometimes the first thing he did was close his office door, put on headphones and listen to some of his favorite musicals and some of the really rousing singing. He thought that might break things free. He said, if that didn't work, he said, then I just lived with the problem for a while. Obviously there's deadlines. He had to make a decision at some point. But by living with it, he just meant he'd go out to dinner. It's in the back of his mind. He'd drive home, back of his mind, he might return to it. So if you're thinking about something that's significant, your life or at work, you're coming back to it and you're making progress, I think it counts as worthwhile reflection. Several people said that just like physiologically, if you look at, it was as if they said, if you look at my brain chemistry, I can't make myself sit down and think about something in depth for a while. I have to do it when I'm ready to do it. And I don't decide when I'm ready, something in my mind <laughs> decides, you better have a look at this. So last comment, our minds are these very complex and largely ununderstood, maybe incomprehensible. Maybe our brains can't really comprehend our own brains, but there's a lot going on that's subterranean, that's unconscious. And it comes up in the form of reflection in a whole variety of ways, depending on who you are, what you're doing, and so forth. I talk a lot about attentional states in one of my classes, and I talk about there's flow, there's mindfulness, there's kind of rumination, and there's mind wandering, and there are these dials, temporal dials and scope dials. Yeah. But this seems like such an important skill. Why is it not explicitly taught in school, not just in business school. By the time you get to business school, you really ought to have this down. <laughs> Why is it not taught? Is it considered 
oh, this is the kind of thing that you, you know, you learn on, on Dr. Phil or why I'm so important. You would never become an athlete without learning how to develop your core muscles, right? So as a leader, you need these attentional muscles to be well-tuned and under some degree of practiced control. Why, why don't we learn this? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure I have the answer. There is a lot that's important that people could learn. And at bottom, at root, it's not that complicated. The book you referred to, we've been talking about, is based partly on 100 interviews. But then I did a lot of reading about the great traditions of reflection going back centuries. And I tried to distill what I learned from the interviews and from this sort of historical, philosophical perspective into just a few lessons. And the first one is sort of observe yourself and see when the times and places are that you do step back, pause, and reflect a little bit. And then the second, uh, the second through the fourth piece of advice are do this reflection in the right way. And sometimes when you're reflecting on a question, you want to just turn off the analytical part of your mind and see what comes to you about the issue. Another approach to reflection is I've got a problem here. I've been looking at it in two ways. Are there three or four different ways I should be looking at it? I called it pondering. And the last one is measuring up. And that is, I've got an issue or a problem. I've got to do something about it. What are the standards that other people are holding me to or that I want to hold myself to? Now, I explained that in like 90 seconds. And it's observe yourself and then try and do it better along these dimensions that have been around forever. You can trace them back to Marcus Aurelius, Thomas Aquinas, all sorts of places. I don't know why we don't offer that. Or not necessarily my approach, but some approach like that. I think an assumption is often that this is about people's personal lives and they can get it when they worship or it's going to sort of come to them naturally. There has been a lot more that's been written recently about the sort of assault on our attention from every direction. And I wonder whether a response to that in the near future will be explicit educational efforts and training in a lot of different places. I mean, you want surgeons paying attention to what they're doing and reflecting on what they have just done. And I think that given this widespread understanding now that our minds really are sort of under siege and atten real attention is getting to be scarcer, maybe there will be more attention to how we pause and reflect. I, I certainly hope so. Now, when you talk about reflection, the subject matter of the reflection, I guess there's, there's a couple different ones there. One is business issues, one or more personal issues and how you not just develop the business and, and solve the business problems, but you know, how you develop yourself and, and become a better person and, and leader. With respect to the former, I spent a lot of time doing that. I go around and talk to companies and executives about digital transformation and this sort of thing and, you know, how to keep your business viable. And, and so I have them all do this exercise where I have them go through and look at their time and, and divide it up into things like planned work, unplanned work, process improvement, and then strategizing. And whatever they do this, the strategizing usually goes to zero pretty quickly, no matter what their intent. And then even the process improvement disappears because leaders are just spending all their time on 
their calendars are full, their meetings are full. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, this crisis, that crisis, this, you know, person quit and this customer did this and whatever. Exactly. And they don't have time to even think about the, the business issues, but you're arguing not just that reflection is important for solving business problems, but there's also, in addition, you have to have time set aside for you to strategize about yourself and to not just do process improvement on yourself. I, I also talk about the, there's a lot of parallels between business strategy and kind of personal strategy, but you need to have time for doing that process improvement, but then you also need that time to really dig into who you want to be. You have a to-do list, you have a to-be list and, and to-like list, right? Like to-live list. There's stuff you want to do, there's how you want to live and then who you want to be. And you need to have those kind of sketched out and you need to be working on them all the time, right? You should. And I think most people regret, and some of the interviewees regret it if they went through long stretches and really hadn't been thinking either longer term about the business or about themselves. So you really want to be doing it. This idea of a to live list came up in an interview with a woman who run Indian woman who runs a fairly complicated organization. And like everybody else, she does a to-do list every day, but she puts on her list and tries to put on her calendar some time slots for actually stepping back a little bit, either to think about business or personal issues. Another thing that a lot of people mentioned to me, these are very busy people, is that for them, reflection wasn't solitary. So going up to the mountain, is this, that's a solitary image, but there were a couple people either in their lives or often people at work that they talked with fairly often, sometimes just briefly, but the sort of tone of the conversation was different. They were revealing a little more of what was on their minds. They weren't trying to present themselves as people who had answers or could quickly crack the case and get answers. There was a more open-ended, fluid aspect to the conversation. And they said, this really was a form of reflection. And sometimes it was about issues of life and sometimes it was issues about work. So once again, coming back to this mantra in the book, observe yourself and see if you really, if there are a couple people down the hallway, on Zoom, whatever it is, where the feel of the conversation is a little different, a little more personal, a little more revealing. That's a form of reflection that can be quite valuable. You just really have to look at your life and see when you're doing it. And I suspect most of the people listening will find they are. And then the task becomes trying to make sure you're doing it as often as you want and using the time well. Because you may have somebody who you like to talk with at work and sometimes you talk personally, but you know, you talk with them about the Super Bowl and maybe you want to do a little less Super Bowl and a little more, boy, here's what's bothering me. What do you think? Yeah. So I tell my students that if they want to learn about a case, right, the way to do it is to get in groups and talk about it. You know, sitting at home and reading it on their own is going to be less productive and trying to solve your life probably also would benefit from some yes. conversations, <laughs> but not just conversations with live humans, but conversations with dead authors. The book Questions of Character, this was really inspirational for me when I went back to this book because I'm always, every year I have to come up with new courses because I pass on my old courses to other people. I need a new course. And I've probably spent half, half of my reading is, is fiction. And I go to theater all the time and 
that's usually segregated and separate from my work life. And so when we teach these students, we, we teach them all these Harvard cases, and yet there are all these cases in fiction, which are, if anything, at least as good and probably better for the purpose of helping people to learn about character. And you have a course where you have them read fiction and theater in particular. I think theater is, is amazingly powerful. And you mentioned one of your books that theater is, is a kind of leisure, but it's, it's a really powerful form of, of leisure. Could you talk about how you got the idea? I saw, I remember I read the story, but tell us, how did you get the idea to incorporate fiction into your class? And how has the curriculum evolved over the years? And what has been your experience teaching these courses, not just for MBAs, but for executives? Sure. The idea of using fiction wasn't mine. I got it from a man named Robert Coles, who now retired and passed away, but he was a Harvard University ed school professor. He'd been active in the civil rights movement in the sixties. In other words, he went to the South and marched. And he knew a number of contemporary authors. He decided at some point in his career that he would do fiction-based teaching, and he got quite good at it, even famous for it. So he taught it all over the place. He was asked if he wanted to teach at HBS one time, and he said, sure. I heard about it, so I went and watched, and uh, it was really quite interesting. He was also a psychiatrist by training, and so he would just sit in the front of a classroom with about 25 students. They'd been assigned a work of fiction. And he would wait for someone to start talking. He never moved from the desk he was sitting on. Occasionally, he would intervene. Good thing with MBAs is you don't have to wait too long. <laughs> yeah. And I watched this. And what I was really seeing was the power of fiction. You mentioned Harvard Business School cases, other schools write cases. These are just dismayingly impersonal. They'll start with some marketing executive looking out the window, and then you move on to the problem, and you just fill in who this marketing executive is with your prejudices about marketing or manufacturing, whatever. Fiction really gets inside people's heads. It really engages them. And so that's the power of fiction. And as I said, Coles didn't ask a lot of questions. He didn't write a lot on the board. He let students react to the questions. And so in this course I've been teaching now for about 25 years, I have a list of books that I find work really well. And some questions that I found really are great starters for thoughtful, somewhat personal discussions. And so it's not that hard to use fiction once you realize you don't have to be a professor of English. You don't have to be a scholar of any kind that we're talking about it might actually help not to be a professor of English. Exactly. And these, <laughs> these stories in many ways are the best case studies because you really see people from the inside. I start with one. I'll describe it just briefly. It's called Use of Force. It's written by William Carlos Williams, who spent his day job for 50 years early in the last century, was as a pediatrician in New Jersey. He was also one of the most important poets in English, extraordinarily talented guy. In this story, which you know, may be partly autobiographical, maybe some kind of composite, he describes this doctor who goes into this a three-page story. He goes into a house late at night. Parents aren't sure they want a doctor there. Their daughters had a fever. There's diphtheria in the community. He's got to figure out 
how to get, look at the back of her throat. And this little girl, she's 10 or 11, she fights him fiercely. And ultimately, with the help of her father, he uses overt physical force to get a look. By this point, her mouth is bleeding. She's shrieking. The question is, did he make the right decision? And students can talk about this for an hour. And you might have some people who have been nurses, or you may have a doctor. They'll bring their own perspectives. Have folks who have been parents, treatments of their kids or elder. This is just three pages, but it gets underneath people's skin. So that's why I like literature. This isn't, I don't want to over-describe what I'm doing as character development, but at least you're getting inside people's heads and you're getting emotional as well as intellectual reactions and you're sparking conversations that are emotional and conceptual among students. So it might be a little step in the right direction of what we called character building earlier on. I would not hesitate to describe it as character building, right? Because those conversations are ones about who you want to be, right? As an individual and as a leader, and you talk about leadership quite a bit, and you mentioned Chester Bernard, you quote him, and he said that one of the most difficult things that you can do is to inspire the cooperation of men. And this is incredibly taxing on you both mentally and and physically. And it's not something that most people really have a stomach for. When we think of great leaders in the past, we're often thinking about these, these military leaders. And so is it fair to describe business in the same breath as war? It seems almost when people who play football think of themselves as warriors, we, we kind of chuckle. We say, yeah, okay, maybe there's a little bit of that there, right? But is leadership across all these different domains or is leadership something which is highly domain specific? I think it's significantly domain specific, but I think that a big problem is that we look across domains and teachers often do this. I've probably done it myself. And we tend to pick out heroic leaders in these different domains. And to some extent we should. So you have some great military leaders, you have political leaders, social reformers who have some cases sacrificed their lives. These are often charismatic, inspiring people with an important vision. But that's just one thin slice of leadership. And I think the vast majority of people who make a real difference in organizations and in the world are what I have called quiet leaders. And this has even been true in the military. So for every George Patton, and maybe a lot of people listening now haven't, don't know who Patton was and haven't seen the great movie with George C. Scott, which is still worth watching called Patton. I strongly recommend it. He's the example of the heroic leader, but the biggest invasion in military history was the one that Dwight Eisenhower orchestrated on D-Day. Eisenhower was not a charismatic individual. He was this quintessential quiet leader. He moved up quickly through the ranks, more and more responsibility, because after he was given an assignment, his superiors found that problems were solved, progress was made, people were working together, they knew what they were doing, and they cared about it. And so I think in every domain, 
it's really important for people to look not just at the leaders, the founders, the entrepreneurs as people that get the attention, but to look close to them at people they're working with and they can observe and see people who are working quietly, effectively, purposefully, and see how they're working and learn from them. So it's really a matter of looking to their left and right and not looking simply for inspiration far above them. Mm -hmm. And presumably the type of leadership you need to exhibit changes based on the type of organization that you're working with. I was rereading this book, The Good Struggle, and I was kind of amazed at how precocious it was and that it came out 10 years ago or so. And I was talking to John Hagel recently, and he makes a lot of the same points that you make. He talks about this big shift and how organizations have changed and how markets are swallowing up the firms, right? The sea of the markets is swallowing up the islands of firms and we're creating these platforms. And you talk about the kind of continuous recombination that Schumpeter prophesied and which you also call modularity. I have a whole course, my digital transformation course, the whole course is basically about modularity and, and composability and how companies are constantly reinventing themselves like on a day-by-day basis. And you say that the kind of Alfred Sloan type of leadership is simply insufficient in today's world. You spent a lot of time talking about the organizational changes. And you start by saying that you have to start with the analytical understanding of what's happening. You have to understand the environment and you have to understand strategy and all that stuff. And I feel like that's the part that we spend most of our time on, right? And when we're teaching in business school, and then you add the next bits, but what is different about leadership in this world of continuous flux? The title of the book is The Good Struggle, I think, much more often than in the old days. And we shouldn't oversimplify the old days, of course. You actually mentioned that maybe we're just going back to the time when you know, Rockefeller and, and Carnegie, they were living in a time that before the, they had stabilized things and created the Michael Porter world. Exactly. The good old days was actually kind of a brief period in this country, maybe in a couple of European countries after the Second World War. When in most industries, there were a few big companies, they kind of figured out it didn't really make sense to compete that hard. And the world was just in a whole lot of ways more stable. I don't think that's been true of human experience or business for most of history. If you were a Venetian merchant and you went sailing somewhere eastward and or you were an investor in one of these boats, would the boat come back? What would it come back with? Who knows? That's been life and business for a long time. So we certainly shouldn't romanticize and maybe should forget this past. But these leaders were, they were like, they were, you talk about cathedrals. I love the story about the, the three stonemasons, right? And that could have inspired your notion that leaders are cathedral builders. Well, yeah, but you know, the cathedral building thing, the, the story basically says you've got these three workmen in the Middle Ages and so you go up to them and ask what, why they're working so hard. And one says, I'm building this beautiful cathedral to give glory to God and it's going to be here forever. The next one says, well, you know, I'm really a craftsman and I'm just, look at this wall I'm putting together. Look at the stones. It's beautiful. I'm proud of it. And the third one says, look, they're paying me. I need the money. I'm supporting my family. It's great to have the feeling that you're contributing to something that's changing the world. But often the best we can do is try and do the best job we can with the tasks in the immediate future, helping the people around us do a better job with that, 
keeping in mind that we want to do something we're proud of, but proud of because we did it over the last week, maybe over the last three months, maybe over a year. It's not going to be a cathedral that lasts forever. Amazon might sneeze or, and the whole thing might disappear. And keep in mind that in today's world, doing this well and putting, helping people put bread on the table is a really important accomplishment. Okay. I think we often demean the everyday work of managers and a lot of other people by saying, well, what really matters in a company is what we're doing in our communities, the breakthrough technologies. Those things, of course, are important. But what you do day by day, building a stronger company, stronger organization, good jobs for people, developing their skills, pride in working together and accomplishing something. You're never going to be on the cover of a business magazine, not that they exist anymore, but it still matters. And that's like the second and third of the three uh, medieval workmen. But what I'm saying is that Mark Zuckerberg can't recruit someone out of, out of university and say, listen, if you come work for me, we're going to build this amazing thing. And then I'm going to give you a retirement package, you know, <laughs> <Right>. when you're 65, <laughs> like that's not how you, that's not how you get people to, to buy into what you're trying to accomplish. You have to focus much more specifically on projects and get buy-in on these coalitions that, that form and, and dissolve with some regularity, right? And help people have a sense that what we are working on is important in some tangible ways sooner. And some of those are personal. It's going to help your career better line on your resume. And we're going to work as a team. And most of the time we're going to like each other, <laughs> not fight too much. And we're going to be proud of, of what we're doing. That's a real accomplishment in today's world. And if you can do that, well, you're likely to get, you'll get a promotion, get a chance to do it on a larger scale or go to another organization and do it again. That's a real skill. You talk a lot about accountability and you mentioned how this kind of idea of vertical accountability, where we have regulators and we have boards of directors and, and they keep everybody accountable. Those are, those have fallen by the wayside and kind of into that vacuum. We had this whole movement of shareholder primacy and markets and markets are supposed to essentially hold everybody accountable. And, and I think you're arguing that that's not sufficient. There has to be something else. CEOs are in a position to do all sorts of things without anybody knowing about stuff and, uh, or they could do things that actually satisfy the market, but ultimately dissatisfy other stakeholders in, in their organization. So what does it mean to be accountable in today's world? And, and why is it so important that leaders step up and hold themselves accountable? First of all, there is competitive pressure. I don't think you should view competitors as enemies, but there's real competitive pressure. It's translated into performance pressure. It's translated into making your numbers. So you really can't, that's a red ball that you really don't want to drop. But people in organizations are held accountable today by lots of other groups. And in a world that's much more open, transparent, social media, a lot more skepticism or cynicism about organizations, especially businesses, you're in kind of a goldfish bowl. You may not like it, but you are accountable to lots of other groups. And you can't really forget that when you make decisions. So if you're simply maximizing shareholder returns, I think you're putting yourself in a very risky sort of position. You also, at the same time, have to be accountable to yourself. 
and you have to decide, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, given my talents and given my longer term aims for my life and the people who depend on me, is this the right place for me? Is it fully engaging me? And one very good thing about this fluid world, it's also a disconcerting thing, is you can move on. You don't join General Motors or IBM or something like that. It's not like getting on an escalator and you just keep going up floor after floor if you do a good job. You may have several jobs and you can choose several jobs. And so you get these opportunities. This is sort of compulsory reflection in some moments. What am I good at and what do I want to do? There's a great line from the comedian Eddie Murphy. You know, you often hear, follow your dream. And that, that's fine. But his response to that was essentially, you can't really follow your dream. You can only do what you're good at if they're hiring. So every few years, people often get the chance to think, and it's not an easy thing to go through. Am I in the right place? Am I good at this? What do I want to learn? What's next? And uh, that's just part of the, the reality today. And it is more of a struggle. What you have to hope is that you find some things that you think are worth the struggle. So the title, The Good Struggle, came from an interview with a man who was ultimately very successful creating a big food business. I think he sold it and got half billion dollars or something like that. And he said that the best times that he and his partner who helped them start the business had was when they were struggling at the very beginning. He said, the joy of life is in the struggle. And he'd been a, a rower when he was in college. And he said, you just don't go out in the morning, morning after morning and the weather's nasty and push your muscles to the point where it's painful for some race six months off. You do it because you really like the work and you like the people on the team that you're doing it with. And you don't want to romanticize work. A lot of work is just work. That's why we get paid to do it. But you want to find something where at least some of the time you're doing something you think is valuable, the people around you think is valuable. There's a sense that we're a team and then do it. And every once in a while, you got to reconsider that and maybe replant yourself. But that's the, this world we're in right now. Hey, I think you referred to it as the, the shoots and, and ladders world, which I, I kind of <laughs> like that. I like that the analogy. I didn't know that that was a, a, originally an Indian game and it had all sorts of moral lessons. Yeah. Just for your readers, some of them may, may not be familiar, but if you have kids, there's this game and you roll dice and you move up to, I hated the game with my kids because it seemed like you go up the ladders, but I was always, the date game is kind of tedious and it was just about to end. And then you go down to shoot and you got to start things over again. But it, it is a world, you go up ladders, you go down shoots, and that's, I think that's not just where we are. Let me just add one other broader point. You know, this golden era, post-war, we had a lot of sort of almost automatic GDP growth and productivity growth, three, four percent a year. That's great for everybody. It's great for companies, great for society. People are more likely to let other people in the lifeboat if everybody's doing okay. There's a lot of reasons to think now that the next couple decades are not going to be high productivity, high growth periods, that the competition's going to get tougher. The pie we've got to divide up is going to get smaller. And that may be a return to the world we've sort of already lived in. And it's, I think a lot of people have a sense of this world. A lot of the people in MBA programs, people like me and you maybe can give them speeches and they listen. They know we're well-intentioned. 
but they have a sense it's pretty turbulent and tough out there and it's going to continue to be. One of the problems there is it creates a feedback loop, right? Because the more turmoil you have, the more your monkey mind is activated and ignited and the more difficult it is to actually do reflection. But then that makes you less well prepared for the chaos that you're immersed in. It can lead to a downward spiral if you don't check it somehow, right? You do have to check it. And this does take discipline. And I think a lot of people are actually checking it more often than they realize. I'm coming back to my comment about observe yourself for a little while. My bet is that most people will find times, conversations, places where they are stepping back and reflecting a little bit. Pay attention to those, try to do them a little more often, prize them, and try to use that time really well. I think it's often said that we evolved as creatures on this sort of fight or flight basis, okay? So that we just respond instinctively. And now we've got a zillion stimuli bombarding us from market, social media. So we're in this constant overstimulated state. But I think the creatures that evolved, it's interesting to speculate on what type of creatures evolved and became us. They must have taken occasional breaks from fight or flight and spent a little time. Do we have food for the next few days? Who's taking care of the offspring? Is somebody guarding the perimeter? These were early forms of reflection that have become sort of hardware wired in us by evolution. And I think that's why they break out. And so people do it while they're commuting or in the shower or, you know, whenever, but we do it, but we've got to really pay attention to when and how, and try to do it better. And by the way, the other thing I did say at the end of that book is there, you really do need from time to step back further. So every couple weeks, you ought to take a half an hour or an hour and sit yourself down in a quiet place. If you want to, if you keep a journal, take it out. If you just want to talk to yourself and some people, by the way, reflected by talking literally to themselves, do whatever works for you for half an hour, 45 minutes with a bigger picture. So this old go to the mountain approach has been around for 2000 years, 3000 years for good reason. And we all need it from time to time. So mosaic is important, but it's not the whole story. I think you're probably going to be less inspired to reflect reading a book like Step Back than you would be if you read Antigone, right? And so you, <laughs> you, you actually, I thought the last chapter of the book on uh, questions of character, you planted the seed for Step Back, I think, because that last chapter was really about yeah. Antigone and, and really the consequences of non-reflective action. And my question is like, I know a lot of people that will expose themselves to literature, but then when it's over for them, like they don't, Yeah, it seems like you have to, it's a skill to figure out how to translate the insights of literature into your life. I know people that will go see Othello and then they'll go home and be jealous, you know, without foundation. <laughs> it's like, wait, didn't you just see that play? Right? Like, how's that possible? Yeah. We all have the feeling that we ought to spend more time reading the classics, whatever they are, and we ought to learn lessons from them and learn the right lessons, as you were just saying. But I think if you want to learn from literature, i.e. from reading fiction, typically, you have to find the right books for you. 
and they don't have to be old, and they don't have to be venerable, and they don't even have to be that serious. They just have to be the kind of books that you either, one person put it very well recently, said, I don't want to read page turners because a good spy story is a page turner. Find a book that's kind of, for you is kind of a page stopper. Okay. You're really engaged. You're it's just, you stop for a minute and it's engaged you. That is valuable reading. To be candid, hardly anybody sits down and reads the classics, Anna Karenina, War and Peace, Othello, or anything else like that. And in a way, there are just maybe many more books and a lot more stuff out there that's streamed these days that will really engage you. And that's the thing. Does it really engage you personally a little more deeply? Now, that said, my wife and I watch, quote, we watch a lot of the simple detective stuff, okay? And you need some of the stuff to sort of decelerate at the end of the day. But sometimes we watch things, and they may have been created by Amazon yesterday, but they get under your skin, and that's the criterion. You got to find the right, quote, literature for you. And it may have been written yesterday and not by Shakespeare, but find it and then spend some time and then do it with somebody else and talk about it a little bit. That's reflection. Mm -hmm. Now, there may be some independent value in learning a lesson from someone who's very different from you. If you're watching someone on Amazon and you're like, it's about an HBS professor with a difficult dilemma around whether to report a student for cheating. <laughs> you, you might learn from that, but you might, it may be, may, there, there's some other levels of empathy that might be developed by seeing someone in a radically different situation. That's right. Or maybe even people, maybe they learn more when they see someone that's different, so different from themselves that they, they stop their self-defense mechanisms are are suppressed to some degree and, and the insight kind of sneaks up on them. Like when you read the secret sharer, you're not going to be like, oh, that reminds me when I was a sea captain and I had this guy smuggled onto the boat, right? <laughs> like Exactly. No, but if they're in the middle of the story and if it connects with you and you think, wow, this guy is in the same situation. He's a young guy in the South China Sea a hundred years ago. But you know, I've been in exactly the same situation. I did something really stupid. And the people around me are catching on. How do I find my way out of this? Uh, then it's connected with you and your life. So for 25 years, I, after I teach this course that uses literature, I ask students what books they like best. And near the top is always a book called Remains of the Day. It was written about 20 years ago. It's a pretty good movie. It's a great book. It describes the reflections of a British butler in a great house in England between the First and Second World War. What does this have to do with the struggles and challenges for young people today? But you see this guy that has really high professional standards, and he's devoted to them, which is admirable, but he may be too devoted to them, which is disconcerting. And even though he's a British butler from the last century, that connects with them, and they start talking and thinking about it. So. The right literature for you is really the right literature for you. Not just entertains, but kind of engages, disturbs, the sort of page stopper I mentioned. And I keep my eyes open for those. The kind of book where you want to violate what you learn from your teacher and make a note in the margin. Mark it up. There are a couple other lessons that you talked about in questions of, of character. Yeah. 
And one of them was, how do you find a, a role model? This seems like something that, that is extremely difficult for a lot of people because they think that the world is changing all the time. And so anyone who was successful in the past has really nothing to offer. And so people, I think, feel a little bit adrift <laughs> when it comes to finding role models. Yeah. How can you find a role model or someone to inspire you? I think sometimes people think that they need to find one role model as opposed to learning insights from lots of people and then stapling them together. Yeah, I'm very much of the, the school of multiple role models. And a great example of that is the very beginning of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. So he was one of the great Roman emperors, and he spent a lot of his life, the last 10 years of his life, up in northern Italy in miserable circumstances, leading Roman armies, defending the empire. And at night, he would occasionally do a form of mosaic reflection. He would just take a few minutes and jot a few things down. It wasn't every night. It wasn't systematic. And this was put together by someone no one knows, and it survived for two, almost 2,000 years. At the beginning, he goes through and he thanks about 15 different people. And these are people in his life. And he thanks each one for something specific. And you'll say, from this person, I learned this. And from that person, I learned this. And this is kind of a composite role model. In other words, he wasn't trying to find a single predecessor as a Roman emperor. He realized he had to learn different things from a lot of different people. They were also role models in, a, I think, a slightly different sense in that he felt accountable to them. So accountable to somebody for honesty, accountable some, for somebody for extra hard work, whatever it was. So I like this idea of a composite role model. And the other thing I think is important, you might want a role model who sort of tells you, boy, it's hard, but I'm on the right path. But you might, might want a role model, and I got this from one of the works of fiction that I discussed for years with students, who's disconcerting and makes you question who you are or what you're doing. That can also be a valuable kind of role model, not one that just confirms what you like to think are your best qualities and your best behavior and gives you a glow because you're thinking about this person. So cafeteria character is not, is not a bad thing in today's world. Yeah. It depends on what you put on your plate. And if, if these are folks that you feel accountable to and set a high standard for you, that's good. It's like having sort of an, a personal board of directors that you feel accountable to. That highlights that you talked about intellectual honesty and the importance to be frank with oneself. And I thought this was this resonated in, in the story by Lewis Auchinloss, which I, I'd never read that story about the lawyer. Right? It, it's always a lawyer for some reason, but this <laughs> lawyer who was dead inside. I, I have a friend who was a consultant with one of the top consulting firms until he was in his early 30s. And he said, he described to me, he said, I never questioned why I went to the school I went to. I never questioned the major that I had. I never questioned why I took the job with the big consulting firm. I never questioned any of the projects that I worked on. And then, you know, in the, his early 30s, he just asked, why have I been doing all this stuff? And it was like the first time really in his entire life that he asked this question and found a different profession. I mean, still in, in business and still in consulting, but very different. Do you think that there, there are a lot of people that are dead inside and, and maybe they never know? I was just interviewing someone recently who was, we were talking about Pascal and how Pascal was critical of 
people that use busyness as a way to keep reflection at bay. And if you're successful at it, you can keep it at bay all the way until the grave. But for a lot of people, they're unsuccessful and then they, and then they discover that something's missing. I'm not sure. I have no way of knowing how many people are truly dead inside. There certainly are some. It's one explanation of why people who are really successful, who have everything, then break the law and often in ways where they're very likely to get caught. And an explanation of this is that they need to feel alive. And they felt alive while they were climbing the ladder, success after success. But once they've got all that, they sort of feel alive like the moth getting closer to the flame. They need some danger in their lives. I don't know how many people are like that. A bigger risk, I think probably more common are people who were, and this is in the Auchincloss book, who have been really lucky they picked the right parents. They picked the right family. They've been in the flow of success. They've never really had a, a real bump in the road. And a colleague of mine about 15 years ago did an in-depth study of the students who were in the MBA program at the time. And she found that the students who had the more complex view of morality in life were often students who had had these sort of bumps in the road, who just didn't fit in naturally and normally in a lot of places. It was interesting. She said it was tended to be more international students, women, minority students, and ex-military. And in all those cases, including the ex-military, these are people who had lived in one world. And then in the case of military, went back into civilian life, which a lot of people who come out of the service after a while say, wow, it took me a while to get my bearings. But all the, these are all people who can see things from different perspectives because they've never been pure insiders in the flow of success. And that actually can be valuable. It can be uncomfortable when you're in one of these transitions or you get knocked to the ground. But you see the world in a more complicated way and you may see yourself as more complicated. And those are both truths that the world is really complicated and you are too. So... I think the sooner people awaken to that, the better. And then they've got more to reflect on. That seems true to me that there's quite a few people that, that go through up through business school and law school who have had this kind of seamless sequence of successes and their resumes just get better and better with, with time. And particularly with, I think at Harvard, you're admitting people younger and younger. So they've had kind of less opportunity to stumble along the way, as opposed to the executives maybe that you work with. And it makes me wonder towards the end of the book, I forget which one it was, you said something to the effect that we should recruit for character rather than for lines on the resume. And that probably applies to business school admissions as much as it does to <laughs> employment. But how can you do it? Because it seems all very fuzzy. Can we bring data to bear? I mean, we're increasingly using analytics to recruit and hire, and we're looking for objective predictors and indicators yeah. of success. Can we identify virtues and character? Is there some better way than just asking for the, you know, the personal <laughs> essay or whatever, where the people recount their travails? Sometimes it would be my answer. Sometimes some people can. Every year people get better and better at creating the right resume and the right cover letter. Apparently. And hiring is really hard and people make a lot of mistakes. Apparently for a lot of routine jobs, 
software can do a better job than the conventional look at the resume and, and do a quick interview. But once you get into jobs that are more complex and more responsibility, you've got to meet with the person, talk with them, try to get beyond the sort of practice responses. And then at the end of the day, I think you do have to rely on good instincts. Now, those may not be your instincts, okay? You want other people involved in these decisions. And just to make up numbers, all of us are probably going to be good about 20% of the time. In other words, hiring is really hard. But there are some people who might be wrong only 60% of the time, which is to say right 40% of the time, making up numbers. Try to get some of those people involved and listen to them and don't indulge your initial instincts. Really try to get a sense of the person. But character is so hard to judge. And of course, it's really only revealed when people have to do things that are hard and when it's tested and things like that. So once you've hired somebody, that's just the beginning of judging character. You've got to see how they do with other people, with you. you just have to keep a close eye. And frankly, you never really know. You want to be loyal and supportive and authentic with people, but even folks that you've worked with and trust for five, 10 years can sometimes really surprise and disappoint you. So if you've got responsibility, just keep your eyes open. And the flip side, I mean, you talk about Shackleton and like Ulysses Grant, no one would have ever predicted that they would be as good as they were at what they did. They probably would never have gotten the job if they applied to some algorithm. <laughs> Lincoln may have been up around 80% because even though Grant was a drinker and nobody liked him, he stuck with Grant and supposedly he said, oh, this is true. Find out what he drinks and give it to my other generals. <laughs> Joe, thanks so much for joining me. Step back is it's an entry drug for the Joe Badaracco experience. Once you read this, I'm sure you'll want to read his other books, Questions of Character and Good Struggle and all the others. Thanks so much, Joe. You're welcome, Greg. I enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.